0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome. My name is Charles Stang. I'm the director here at the Center for the Study of World Religions. I'm very pleased to welcome you to this evening's panel and performance on Arvo Perrot's White Light. Uh, before I introduce our panelists, um, just a couple of mundane matters. First of all, please silence your phone or just turn it off. And second, um, this evening includes a panel and a performance. The panel discussion will take place here until 7 p.m., um, whereupon we invite you to join us across the street in the Andover Chapel for a performance of six pieces of Arvo Paert's. A reception will follow the performance in that same space to which you're all, of course, invited. Arvo part I've been listening to the music of Arvo Pert for over 20 years. Ever since, someone dear to me gave me a CD of Alina, a beautiful and haunting compilation, uh, one of whose pieces we'll have the pleasure and privilege of hearing later this evening. Other releases and compilations followed to the point where I had a fairly respectable Pert library for a time there. I took him with me on my travels, and I remember vividly a long bus ride through the Negev desert in Israel in the late 1990s during Holy Week. And it just occurred to me this morning that was 20, exactly 20 years ago this week. Um, and I was listening over and over again on that bus ride to Perts Passio, which is a 70-minute meditation on the passion story from John's Gospel. And that um, performance was by some of my favorite musicians, uh, the Hilliard Ensemble. But at a point I stopped listening to my CDs. I don't know if anyone else has this problem. Um, and I stopped listening to Parrot. I don't really know why. I didn't stop entirely, of course, because his music's everywhere now, so you can't really stop listening to him unless you stop listening, watching films. Um, and I was uh, somewhat surprised to learn that he is the most performed living composer in the world today. In addition um, to tonight's performance, you can hear his Passio performed this Friday, right? Good Friday, those of you for whom that uh, that date may not have registered. This Friday is Good Friday at Trinity Church in Copley Square, we have a representative from Trinity over here, Rita Powell. That will be at 5.30 p.m. And just last Tuesday, I noticed on my Facebook feed, the great choir of the Cathedral Church of St. John the Divine in New York City performed Peart's Miserere. And according to the Arvo Peart Center's website, this evening alone, this Monday, uh, there are no less than three performances of his happening worldwide in Budapest, Hungary, Melbourne, Australia, and Belo Horizonte, Brazil. Now they didn't know about ours, so in fact that may be a gross underestimate of just how many performances there are on this Monday evening. So as I said, at a moment, at a a point in time I stopped listening to Peart's music regularly, and so I'm very grateful to our panelists and to all who have helped bring this event off because they brought him back into my life. For Those of you for whom Arvo Peart is entirely unknown, here is what the center, uh, the Arvo Pärt Center has to say by way of introduction. Arvo Pert, born 1935, is one of those composers whose creative output has significantly changed the way we understand the nature of music. Today he is known for his unique Tintinnabuli, Tintinaboli. I was practicing it. Tintinaboli. Tintinaboli style. Although his earlier modernist works are perhaps less known to wider audiences. His entire oeuvre has shaped our perception of music. Regardless of nationality, cultural background, or age, many people have been touched and influenced by the timeless beauty and deep spiritual message of Peart's music. His works are performed not only in concert halls, but over recent decades also in film, dance, and theater performances, and other multimedia texts. Before I turn to our three panelists, I'd like to thank Corey O'Brien, the center's associate director, and Ariella Ruth Goldberg in the back, the center's events coordinator. Uh, They have taken the lead on our end in organizing tonight's two events. I'd I'd like to thank our panelists. Before I I introduce them properly, I'd like to give my thanks to Laura Dolp, not least for this volume, Arvo Peretz White Light, the recent produ- uh, publication of which served as the inspiration for this panel. To Keith Heller for bringing this volume and her essay in it to the center's attention. And finally, to uh, Andrew Shenton for his time and expertise in pulling together this evening's performance. And of course, to the four vocalists who, uh, whom, along with Andrew, we will here perform later. So now, proper introductions going to introduce our panelists in the order in which they will speak. First, Professor Andrew Shenton. Andrew is Associate Professor of Music and Houghton Scholar of Sacred Music at Boston University. He holds a bachelor, master, and doctoral degree from London University, Yale, and Harvard, respectively. His academic work focuses on music and transcendence and includes major publications on Olivier Messiaen and Arvo Pärt an accomplished performer. He is artistic director of two Boston choirs, the Boston Choral Ensemble, and Vox Futura. Please note that Andrew will have to step out before the panel is finished in order to prepare for the performance across the street. Second, Professor Laura Dolpe. Laura is Associate Professor of Musicology and Coordinator of General Education Studies at the John J. Calley School of Music at Montclair State University. Her interdisciplinary research explores the historical agency of music as a site of human transformation, including music and spirituality, the interrelation of music and social spaces, mapping and musical practices, and the poetics of the natural world. She is, as I mentioned, the editor of Arvo Peart's White Light, Media, Culture, Politics from Cambridge University Press, and also the co-author, I'm A co-author of the Cambridge Companion to Arvo Pert and Artistic Citizenship, Artistry, Social Responsibility and Ethical Praxis from Oxford University Press. She received her PhD in Historical Musicology from Columbia University. And finally our very own Kaith Heller. Kaith is an award-winning poet, essayist, performer, filmmaker, and doctoral student here in the Committee on the Study of Religion at Harvard. She is also a visiting assistant professor in the Language and Thinking program at Bard College. Her recently published work includes the poetry collection Immolation and various critical essays and poetry in such venues as the American Poetry Review, Tricycle, the Harvard Divinity Bulletin, Arvo Parrot's White Light. I think that's the fourth time I've mentioned that volume in my introduction and in the forthcoming essay volume, Quo Anima, Innovation in Contemporary American Poetry. Keith's creative and scholarly research investigates the intellectual history and future of visionary thought and practice in the arts, social and environmental justice, and technology, mysticism, traditional practices and pedagogies of wisdom cultivation in world religions, and, others, and other efforts to achieve a more compassionate world. Very much in that spirit. I'm happy to say that Kite is leading the vision lab here at the center this semester, an experimental lab under the ages of the future of religion. So I've asked each of our panelists to speak for about 15 minutes, whereupon we'll open it up for questions and discussions. Thank you again for coming out this evening, and I do hope that you can stay for the performance afterward. Thank you.
1: So I'm Andrew Shenton, and I would like to thank you for the opportunity for being here and to all the people at Harvard for having uh, done a great job in helping us to get this all together. It's been a pleasure. So I'm tasked with actually sort of introducing you to Arvo Pärt. So how many of you actually know some music by Arvo Pärt? Good. Any Russian Orthodox scholars here? Oh, few. <laughs> <laughs> I can just say what I like. Um, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna introduce you to the sort of musicological themes and, and the things that interest people who are talking about Arvo Pärt. because one of the extraordinary things is that for somebody who was born in 1935, it's only comparatively recently that the scholarly community has actually taken any interest in discussing him. And that's been through people like Kaith and Laura um, and myself and a a group of other people um, taking some time to actually talk about him. It's still very um, much in the infancy, um, but I'll, I'll tell you a few things about him. So um, he is um, often portrayed like this, and I'll explain in a moment why that is. And I was listening um, to some people talking beforehand saying that they've seen a picture of him wearing tight jeans and all this sort of stuff because he's actually trying to humanize himself a little bit more. But um, this aesthetic man, uh, balding, um, pious, and all those sorts of things is certainly how he's portrayed. And as the introduction mentioned, you've certainly heard music by Arvo Pett. He was in Fahrenheit 9-11, There Will Be Blood. I mean, all sorts of things. Uh, Contact, all all sorts of movies. So um, why is he famous? Why is he the most performed um, contemporary composer in the world? Well, uh, in about 1968, having had a fairly classical training in the best sense of the word, and having composed um, a number of pieces in the style of the time, a little bit behind the time because he was in Estonia, which was um, under Russian influence at the time. um, So a lot of the stuff had to be done according to the Russian Composers Union. Um, he decided that he, he, he couldn't do this anymore. And so in 1968 until about 1976, he went through a period of what we now call introspection. Um, some people say he didn't write anything. He wrote a few pieces during this time. And when he arrived at the end of this, he had decided that is, it is enough when a single note is beautifully played. And so what he did was develop, invent, um, whatever you want to say, a, a musical style called Tintinabuli. Um, which means sounding bells. Um, And what you can see here, you can't see it very well, and I'm going to show you it in, in a bit more detail in a moment, is he devised a style which consists of only two musical lines. The first consists of a melodic line which moves largely by step and is founded a lot on plain chant, And the second one is an arpeggio. And this piece, it says fur Alina at the top, which was the one mentioned in the introduction. I'm going to play this for you um, in the concert later on. It's very, very short. And there's a number of interesting things about it, um, largely the fact that it's just such an extraordinarily sort of small score. But I'll, I'll come back to that in just a moment. And so in Tintinabuli, how many of you are, are musicians of, of any sort? Okay, fewer hands. So you don't have to be to enjoy his music, and you don't have to be to understand any of the presentations today. But what we do is we describe one of these two voices, the melodic voice, and the other one is the Tintinabuli voice, the one that is the sort of sounding bells part. So if I just focus in a little bit more on this, um, what he does is he puts down a, a, a note at the beginning, which is a B, and then you can see this looks a bit like normal notation, but it's very, very sparse. And it really is one of the lines, which is the second one down, is simply a B minor triad. It's only the notes B, D, or F sharp. And the other line consists of um, a moving part, which moves almost exclusively by step. And so this is tintinnabuli. What he didn't know in 1976, and 1977, when this, um, when these pieces started to first come to public attention, and there was a, a performance of them, is that this, this was going to be such a, uh, an important and revolutionary and um, a very productive type of music. And so Passio, which Trinity Church is going to do, is this simple technique but lasting 70 minutes. And it's an extraordinary, Passio is a truly extraordinary work. I thoroughly commend the performance to you. So as a composer, he does a couple of things and he's been called a minimalist because he works with minimal materials. He doesn't like that too much. But in minimalism, you set up a couple of things. So if you say that every third note is going to be a B, that's um, a sort of mathematical way. And once the machine's been set in motion, the piece lasts as long as it needs to play out whatever the math is. And then the second one that um, is minimalism that you'll, that you'll see and hear in some of the pieces in the performance later on is called Rules of the Game, where you just set up a number of rules and the piece just works itself out. What is extraordinary about the genius of Pet is that all this math makes such, a, it's such wonderfully beautiful music. A lot of it is very contemplative. Um, but he is so clever that if there is something where he wants to change the math in order to make it more beautiful or more difficult, d- different, he does. So he's not completely tied to the rules of the game or the machine in motion. Um, ECM Records is a company um, whose founder, Manfred Eicher, heard one of his pieces on the radio, stopped the car until the piece had finished, and then wrote to pay it and... Um, is this whole minimal sort of um, aesthetic of ECM records has a lot to do with Pet's current um, uh, portrayal in the world and our understanding of him as a person. And all his um, CD covers are very much like this. This is not a Pet cover, but it's typical of ECM records. So this is one of the things. This guy, Manfred Eicher, um, gave Pet a public persona, which is largely true. Um, but it's a very important part of marketing, and particularly since it happened quite a long time ago. It started a long time ago. So this is the cover for Passio. And in the introduction, you heard about the Hilliard Ensemble. So have you, have any of you heard of the Hilliard Ensemble? So it's a group usually of guys, um, but it does include women too, um, um, founded by Paul Hillier. And when Pett first first heard the Hilliard Ensemble, he knew that that was what his music was going to sound like. And particularly Passio, he wasn't convinced that Passio was a good piece until he heard um, the Hilliard Ensemble doing it. They performed it in Durham Cathedral in England, and for a few, there were like three performances of it, and people were queuing round the block to get tickets. It was like a sort of pop concert, which actually many of the concerts of his works are these days. He's extremely um, well-fated. Um, this is just a few of the numerous awards that he's been given. He's been given lots of honorary doctorates and so on and so on. And so this is because he is a phenomenon. Um, and he's also very nice. So he actually is sort of accessible and personable and speaks many languages, including English, and is just, is just sort of all-around good guy. Um, one of the most extraordinary things about him is <clears throat> probably about 10 years ago, he decided that he was going to found his own archive. Um, Rather than leave it to after his death, there was going to be, to a certain extent, control over his own materials, but also just keeping all his manuscripts and the uh, records of concerts and and all the sketchbooks. He has has hundreds and hundreds of sketchbooks dating back to the um, late 60s, early 70s. And what you can see here is um, an architect's design drawing for um, the center, which is going to open in October, which is um, partly funded by the Estonian government and by some big sponsors. Mercedes-Benz is one of the sponsors. you guess what car he drives Um, so this is going to open up and this will be a great repository because it will give people sort of unprecedented access to the sketchbooks and some of the things that we don't have yet so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about his religion because I think it's sort of very very interesting and one of the things that hasn't been talked about very much um, so far so I'm going to talk to you about him but I'm also going to talk to you about um, Oh, sorry, this is, um, I'm going to give you an an over, this is, my slides are up there, and I I don't have it in front of me. Let me give you an an over overview to start with, but I'm going to talk about St. Silouan the Athenite in a moment. To date, there are about 112 pieces. I just finished writing a book, and he had stopped writing in 2015, and damn him if he didn't just write another one that didn't get into my book. It's very rude. Uh, (laughs) But that was, uh, the world premiere was given a couple of months ago, and the premiere in Estonia is going to be at the opening of his center. So around 64 of them have sung text in nine languages, Church Slavonic, English, Estonian, French, German, Italian, Latin, Russian, and Spanish. And from the earliest compositions that are still in his catalog, because he's removed some, they date from uh, 1954 to about uh, 2017. So um, some of the works are discounted because they're in a style that he no longer approves of. And quite a lot of the oeuvre is taken up with children's songs because he used to write for theater and for film music. Um, there are seven works that are based on religious texts that are not sung, including Orient and Occident, um, For Lenart in Memoriam, and these words, and also the Symphony Number no. 4. And although these don't have sung texts, the majority of his works do, the texts themselves have informed the music. So what he does, for example, in Passio, is every time there is punctuation, the punctuation is described in the music in some way. So if there's a period, there's a certain length rest. If there's a comma, there's a certain length rest. And all of the phrases are in pairs. One ends in a dissonance, and the second one ends in a consonance. And so this is part of his his style. So there are a number of pieces that that, that are um, textless, but the text is there. And it's a very interesting thing because it's one of those things where if you know anything about mentalities and Steven Pinker. Um, I think that Pett understands that you would know the text in your heart coming from God, even though you actually haven't um, consciously um, registered it and, and put it into a verbal language. Pet's fond of psalm settings, setting 12 different psalms and setting 121 and 131 twice each. Um, many of the psalms are drawn from the Song of Ascents, the title given to 15 of the psalms, um, which biblical commentators suggest may have been sung as pilgrimages. Um, Of the biblical passages other than Psalms, most are taken from the Gospels. Matthew there are five, Mark none, Luke 7, and John 3. There are three other biblical passages used. Two are from the Hebrew Bible, from Genesis and Ecclesiastes, and one from Corinthians in the New Testament. And It's a bit surprising there aren't more from the New Testament, but um, that's what it is. He set the complete ordinary of the Mass three times. And I should have um, said at the beginning that his religious background, his parents were nominally Lutheran. And he claims that most of the music when he first started that he knew about was actually from the Catholic services. And so we're also, we also have a thing that he's written a lot of music which is actually not suitable for liturgical use. Um, and some of it is. So um, you'll hear the uh, Kyrie from the Missa Syllabica, a, miss that's a mass that's actually syllabically set um, today. And that's one of the liturgical pieces. Um, he, uh, he actually um, transferred to the Russian Orthodox Church in 1974, along with his wife, his second wife, Nora. The majority of texts, around 28, are non-biblical. Of these, many are specific to their commissions, which account for their unusual subject matter or comparative rarity. For example, Morningstar, which sets the prayer of St. Bede of Durham, um, and it was actually a commission for Durham University. Around half of the miscellaneous religious texts are from the Orthodox liturgies, um, many of them well-known, such as the Canon Pokianon, and there are three settings of four popular Latin hymns, the Salve Regina, the Stabat Mater, the Te Deum, and Veni Creata, and several texts concerning or attributed to the Church Fathers. It's a pretty eclectic collection, and what's missing is as important as what's actually there. So he actually um, there's a sort of emphasis on works of lamentation and suffering. So for example, Passio and Lamentate and Miserere, which was mentioned earlier. And there are very few works of pure praise and joy, which is unusual, because when you actually know him, he is a praise and joy kind of person, but it's a very subdued. So St. Um, and the Athenite, how many of you know this guy? Oh good, I'm, I'm really hitting that. This is going to be great. <laughs> I feel I can say anything again. Um, other than what's described in a sort of thumbnail sketch that I've just given you, um, I wanted to talk about St. Silouan the Athenite because there are two major pieces, St. Silouan's Song of 1991 and a big work called Adam's Lament, which came out in 2010, which are based on um, aspects of Orthodox theology that come from St. Silouan. So St Silouan is sometimes called Staretz or the Elder Silouan. He was largely uneducated. He um, didn't write down anything, but he had a guy called Sophrony who was a sort of emanuensis for him. According to Sophrony, quote: Though the Staretz was almost unlettered, his notes, which were an attempt to record what was revealed to him, both in content and form, often read like the Psalms. This is natural since they were born of unceasing prayer. The beat is slow, the typical rhythm of prayer in the deep heart. So Soffrey and later interpreters maintain that there's ample evidence that St. Silouan's learning came not from books or men, but from the God spirit. He was a man of few words because concentration on divine truth eventually leads to, quote, the realm of profound silence, end quote, where one becomes like Christ. It's highly surprising, therefore, that Pet, who is known for his use of silence in his music, is drawn to a man whose path to truth is through silence. There are three principal themes in St. Silouan's writings that are echoed in Pet's work, kenosis, theosis, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Kenosis, let me remind you, is the doctrine that Christ relinquished his divine attributes so as to experience human suffering. It is interpreted in the Christian tradition as self-emptying to become receptive to God. In the orthodox tradition, kenosis is only possible through humility and denotes continual epiclesis, the invocation of the Holy Spirit, and self-denial of one's own human will and desire. And the goal of kenosis is union with God, and this goal can also be achieved through theosis, the, the process of becoming holy by grace. This is in turn brought about by catharsis, which is purification of mind and body. So it is ascetic practices that usher in a kenosis similar to that of Christ, by which the person empties him or herself in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned, pett is often portrayed as an ascetic, or at least as monkish. But there is a deeper truth to this characterization than is suggested by popular depictions. Peart has acknowledged entering to periods of quietness and stillness before he composes, including several longer periods, including the one I mentioned between 1968 and 1976. This is a particular practice of catharsis or purification that frees Pet to be receptive to the Holy Spirit. The drawing of music out of silence, coaxing the audible from the inaudible, is a perfect illustration of kenosis in action. So what is important for Peart the evangelist is not only personal knowledge of God, but also helping others to know God. He does this with deep humility through composing. Humility is essential, and as T.S. Eliot says, endless. As described by Silouan, one of the main aspirations of a Christian is humility. Quote, but how may I know God, you will ask? And I say that we have seen the Lord by the Holy Spirit. If you humble yourself, the Holy Spirit will show your Lord to you. This humility is typical and demonstrates that a person has acknowledged God as the source of life and defers glory and credit to God, not accepting any for themselves. I believe that Pet deliberately aims for a negation of personality in his composing that embodies the fully realized ideals of Christian humility. Pett does not believe his music comes from his own brilliance or talent, but that he is, in effect, channeling the truth and beauty of God. Any talent he has is God-given, and the only possible action for a Christian is to turn these gifts back to God. By utilizing his gift as a composer in the service of God, Pet is merely attending to his Christian responsibilities. The idea of Peart as God's ventriloquist, a mouthpiece for the divine, is supported by primary sources, including numerous quotations from the composer himself about his life and compositional method, and also from secondary sources, including the cultivation of his ascetic public persona. So we come to some problems if we start talking about this. And as um, was mentioned in the introduction, my interest is in transcendence. I'm going to give you just a little bit about how I think um, this music fits together as transcendence before I finish. Pet is evidently a prayerful man, and for him, composing is a form of prayer. His music arrives out of this personal silence that allows him to hear the music, to take it from silence, and to commit it to paper. This personal quietude, which people gain from his music, and is one of the reasons it is so possible, comes from a deep understanding of self, and self-knowledge is essential because it comes from action. Quote, I believe that anyone who wants to change the world must begin not at the other end of the world, but that the starting point must be within him, Peart has said. And this is accomplished millimeter by millimeter. Politics has not been my concern. First and foremost, it has always been music that matters to me. And the politics part is actually not true, because he has made some very um, highly charged political acts, including dedicating his works um, to um, a woman who was uh, killed in Russia. Um, This statement (laughs) doesn't mean that Peart is detached from the world. On the contrary, he has made many political gestures. And he believes um, in the pain and um, hopelessness of the world. And this is written out into some of his music as well. His compositional process is therefore not egotistical. In an acceptance speech for the Sonning Prize in 2008, Peart acknowledged that human beings are imperfect and noted that a successful work of art can be much better than its creator. It overtakes him and outperforms him and his mundane faultiness. The new dimensions of his work, even if it is still far from perfect, is able to transcend the author's imperfections." And what people have found in huge numbers is that this is a truth. So I'm going to give you um, a large quote to end with that sort of embodies the Christianity that's at the heart of his composing. Pett spoke about the words of St. John. He said, These mystic words of the gospel, according to John, in the beginning was the word, lie at the heart of it all, since without the word, nothing would exist. I believe that this concept should not only be conveyed in the text, but in every note of the music as well, in every thought, in every stone. The roots of our skill, and he's referring to his compositional skill, lie in this thought, in the beginning was the word. We may interpret it in many different ways, but this has more to do with the ancient formula that once again takes up the summa sumerium, something that is at the same time extremely complicated and incredibly simple. This is just to give you an example of some of the religious texts he used, and I'm happy to answer questions about this um, later on in the discussion. So um, I believe that PET's music is, as an agent of revelation is undeniable. And those who've heard it, whether they're conscious of it or not, um, often accept it in this way. And it's a very interesting other point that musicolo- musicologists are taking up, and I'm very interested in this too. If you listen to Passio and you're not a Christian, you may still be very affected by it. And as you know nowadays, when people are largely listening to things not in concert performances, but on you know, headphones and through Spotify and YouTube and so on, um, they may not have the text in front of them, and it's in Latin, and they may not even know the story of the Passion, yet it's still a profoundly moving piece, and this is important because not many composers are uh, able to do this these days. So I'm going to leave you with this. Um, my, my, my writing wasn't mentioned in the, <laughs> the Prelude, so I'm just plugging <laughs> it now. <So. laughs> If you, if you want to know a little bit more, um, we have this set going on with uh, Cambridge University. And so the Cambridge University companion to Arvo Pett um, has a lot of essays in it, including, if you're not musical, um, some that help you with the musical um, aspects of his work. There's an essay by Laura in it about um, his um, public and, um, uh, in, in the public eye. Um, and then I just finished, and it went to press today, Arvo Pett's resonant text, and then damn it if it doesn't say 2015 on there. <laughs> but, you know, things happen. Okay, thank you.
2: So, hello, welcome. My name is Laura Dolp, and it's such a pleasure to be here. Um, I'd like to, again, thank Charles uh, Stang and the CSWR for the invitation to be here. I'd also like to uh, extend a special thanks to Virginia Johnson from the Dance Theater of Harlem for her permission uh, to show some rare dance dance footage. So you're really in for a treat uh, today. And also to the choreographer, Patrick Corbin, for his willingness to speak to me personally about um, some of his older work. So I'm going to be a little bit more formal about this and read. So I'd like today I'd like to offer one of Perrot's early works, The Cantus in Memory of Benjamin Britten, which was composed in 1944 and revised in 1980, as a case study to illustrate the possibilities of artistic repurposing. After 3 decades in the public sphere, Cantus has been subject to numerous interpretations and has been absorbed into the complex labor of culture and politics. Like so many of Perth's early Tintinabuli works, the repurposing of cantos has addressed the greatest social, environmental, and political challenges of our time. Today, I'd like to draw your attention to one of the ways that Perret's music, and cantos in particular, became a kind of anthem for a community of American dancers during the AIDS crisis. Mm. Do I have the clicker? Ah, thank you. There we go. Paired composed the work in the year following Benjamin Britten's death in December 1976. Paird talks about his sudden recognition of the magnitude of the loss and his inexplicable feelings of guilt because he discovered Britten's, just discovered Britten's music, which Paird described as unusually pure and evocative of forms of medieval music that he admired. On a personal level, Parrott had wanted to meet Britain as well, so he was also mourning that lost opportunity. Kantos is composed for string orchestra um, and bell and a. From his compelling melodic drawing, and I have to say, as an aside here, that there are volumes and volumes and volumes of these extraordinary drawings, very elemental drawings of most compositions that he's done. And the opening of the Parrot Center will allow uh, many of us to go and look at these these uh, just absolutely stunning uh, kind of visual concepts. From his compelling melodic drawing, we can understand some of its basic structural principles. It is seamless in its material, its gesture descends as it progresses, and its symmetries are both horizontal and vertical. Its quality of seamlessness is brought about by Perrot's deployment of an old musical form, a mensuration canon, and in this case, where different instruments enter with increasingly longer notes. The piece begins with three strikes of the bell, reiterating them in the main pitch, A, that governs the entire work. As it progresses, tintinnabuli is reflected in melodic voices that outline the A minor scale and triadic voices that outline in the A minor triad. Throughout Cantus, the upper and the lower instruments of the orchestra are composed of pairs of these, what we call M voices or T voices, working in tandem. However, the middle layer of the violas have only an M voice, or only a melodic voice, and thus, at least from the standpoint of Perrot's own ontology, can be viewed as more subjective, and I can say a little bit more about that in the question and answer if you have questions. All told, during the work's seemingly endless descent, there are five layers of tempi, and moments of biting dissonance despite the simplicity of musical materials. Once the basses have finished their iteration of the M-voice, the bell sounds one last time. In its first commercial recording, which was released on a on uh, 1984 ECM album, which firmly established Parrott's musical presence in Western Europe and North, uh, North America, in addition to Cantos, the album contained two vi- versions of Frat and the album's namesake, the longer work Tabula Rasa. It also solidified Perrott's early Tintinabuli sound, its single-pointedness, its reductiveness, and its crystalline quality for, its increase, for his increasing audience. The album also provoked a wealth of responses from artists in other creative disciplines. And this is something that's very, very, very interesting to me and really basically the body of my research at the moment. From the beginning, Perrott's music was steadily integrated into film soundtracks. Today, of the 100-plus films where Mu- Parrot's music is appropriated, Cantos has been incorporated at least 16 times, and I'm sure that this list in front of you is incomplete. Visual artists have also found ways to respond to the work's structure and, and atmosphere. Choreographers have also turned to Kantos for its emotional impact and its symmetries, and in a moment I'm going to turn to the two of those earliest works there. In one of its most dramatic second lives, Cantos became a touchstone for American choreographers in the early 1990s when the AIDS epidemic was at its peak. In 1992, when the choreographer Ulysses Dove, there to the left, first set Peretz Cantos, AIDS had become the leading cause of death for American men between the ages of 25 and 44. The epidemic had been part of a national consciousness for the better part of a decade, exposing multiple fault lines of inequality with its social and economic injustice. Incompetence and apathy towards those initially affected, particularly in the gay community, had allowed it to spiral. The devastating progress of the disease had brought Dove to an artistic standstill and had rendered life a constant elegy in the worlds of Patrick Corbin, there pictured to the right, who was a member at the time of the Paul Taylor Dance Company. In addition to their personal losses, Dove and Corbin's contemporaries, including including dancers and choreographers such as Arnie Zane, Robert Joffrey, Alvin Ailey, and Rudolf Nureyev, who had published perished in droves from AIDS-related illness. By 1996, there were half a million Americans with AIDS. In June, the same week that Dove's setting of Cantos received its American premiere in New York, Dove himself died of AIDS related complications. A year before, and without knowledge of Dove's engagement with Peretz Cantos, Corbin had also turned to this music for inspiration. In a recent conversation, Corbin said that these like minded synergies through Perth's music were frequent, since his music pervaded the dance community and served as an active part of the zeitgeist during the darkest days of the epidemic. In retrospect for Corbin, it seemed like everyone was usi- was using music from Tabula Rasa. And this is a recent conversation that I just had with Patrick um, about this, and it was quite a, quite a revelation to me. Um, I think part of the reason that this this history is not known is because many of the people that made these works are have died, and that dance in particular is is uh, not as well documented. And when it is documented, it's held very closely, it's held very close to the chest. Uh, so there's a whole unwritten history here that that Perth's music plays quite a central role in. Dove's own setting, entitled Dancing on the Front Porch of Heaven, was born from a desire to reconcile himself and to remember the people he had lost, expressing at one point that I wanted them, wherever they they are, to know that the fact that they passed through the world was enough reason to make a ballet. When asked about the work's gestation, he explained that the year before he made it, he'd lost 13 people, including his father. It seemed like a never-ending falling of dominoes, There was never a moment to just rest and regroup from this constant, endless loss of people. All of a sudden, I reached this point where I had to come to terms with the issue of loving people and losing them. Dove's work has four parts, and each part reiterates Parrot's cantos, but with different kind of dramatic goals. Thematically, it moves from love to friendship to loss and then to release. In the process of his choreography, Dove discovered that Peart's music facilitated turning every movement into a sculpture, off of which energy just flowed, in effect sort of facilitating the message without all the hysteria. Corbin, on the other hand, his later rendering of Cantus, entitled Hour of the Wolf, informs the first half of the larger work, which also includes Dvorak's Nocturne, um, Opus 40. Its provocative title is drawn from the 1968 surrealist film by Igmar Bergman, some of you may know this, um, which refers to a time between midnight and dawn. Bergman described this as the hour when most people die, when sleep is deepest, the sleepless are haunted by their deepest fear, and when ghosts and demons are most powerful. It is also the hour when most children are born. Like Dove, Corbin chose, chooses the intimacy of a duet form, and he draws on a personal vocabulary of sleep, formulating a physical ritual of remembrance um, of his partner who had died before the work was completed. The choreographer characterizes the first part as realizing his loss, and the second part as kind of enacting a form of healing. For Corbin, Peretz Cantos enacted the never-ending loop that we were in. He attributes his repetitive impulses in the choreography to the structural effects of Tintinabuli and describes the bell of cantos as something that initiates and and awakens, leaving the dancers to deal with a quietude that is night. So I'd like to take the opportunity to show you this clip. This is from Dove's piece, Dancing on the Front Porch of Heaven, um, and it's for male duet. It's the second part. Uh, And he describes, Dove himself described this section of the piece in the following way. He said that it describes a bond of friendship that is so deep that nothing comes between two people, not even death. Dancing on the Front Porch of Heaven traverses celebration, recognition, release, and the desire to justify every life. Its gestures are dense and technically challenging, synthesizing modern and classical gestures as well. Like Peart's score based on canons, Dove's movement descends into tenderness and arrives where it began. It enacts the physics of intimacy and separation, of the repercussions between individuals offset and yet bound together. But it isn't only the sounded aspect of Peart's cantos that is crucial to Dove's, or for that matter, to Corbin's endeavor. The initial silences between the strokes of the bell create a third space where loss and the idea of recovery could coexist. Dove said that he had never felt such a sense of healing with a work, declaring that he had made his peace with the impossible. By his own admission, it was also an indictment of our cultural inability of knowing how to mourn. In an essay written a year after Dove choreographed the work, James Miller investigates the numerous elegies created by gay choreographers during that period, among the graves dug by failures of government agencies, rampant apathy, and homophobia, as well as by the virus, Miller writes that Anastasis comes as a blessed moment of recovery from the fatalistic discourse of public health to join forces with the living against the world, the flesh, and the virus. This, in this context, Dove's elegy was both a consolation and a form of action, In his 2004 study of the collision of AIDS with dance and dance with AIDS, David Gere claims that the most incisive set of choreographies of the period not only envisioned a time when AIDS would be cured, but when those who had died of AIDS would be erotically restored to us. If if Peretz Cantos bears witness to trauma, if truth can be located in fragmentation, disruption, gaps of silence, then it could be that capturing those experiences in dance provides a way of keeping faith with trauma, truth, and history. While the utility of Parrott's music in the context of Dove and Corbin's work is emblematic of an empathetic and ethical responses to the world's injustices, the link between Tintinabuli and ethics is not so straightforward. The idea that the fabric of Perrot's music could be morally persuasive or embody moral authority has been a tenacious idea of his reception. Some commentators have even suggested that the ethos of his music be in the service of Christian humanist teachings, whose agenda is to, quote, solve the crisis of modernity. But the majority of Perret's audience has interpreted his as religiosity, not as a literal, literal prescription, but rather as an open-ended and suggestive set of values. At the very least, we could consider how Dove and Corbin embrace Perret's music in order to engage trauma that was so fatally misunderstood, how it attempts to bridge a meaningful divide, namely, how does one understand the suffering of another? In Dove's Threshold to the Divine, Cantos expresses stability. It both releases the past and defies the physics of that separation. For Corbin, it mediates the porous boundary between sleep and death. In both cases, it amplifies patterns of flow, interconnection, dependence, and inevitability, and serves as a mirror upon which the tensions of an age can be refracted. Thanks.
3: Everyone. <laughs> I wanted to offer deep thanks to Charlie Stang and to the staff at the CSWR, Corey O'Brien and Ariella Ruth Goldberg, for all your work and effort with this um, event. And also for my dear friend Laura Dolph <laughs> and Heather Cox, who came all the way from New York, and Andrew Shenton, who I'm just having the pleasure of meeting. Um, I just adore Arvo Pertz's music so much, and I really wish he was my grandfather, you know? <laughs> um, and my perspective on his work and the chapter that I wrote for this volume is um, coming from a different positionality than um, the musicologists that we've just been hearing from. Um, and I offer you this quote right at the beginning, which is by Aru Peret, because really what I'm thinking about is how the listener perceives and understands this music. And I'm coming from a different pr- premise, which is really that the music itself doesn't become anything in particular until the exact moment that it's being heard and experienced in time and in space, and that it's constantly being reinvented, and as such reinventing what spirituality might be. Um, So I wrote a very long chapter for this volume, (laughs) which was over 40 pages and took me many months and revisions. And it was difficult. But I'm going to just, I've just sort of cherry-picked moments from this to share with you in hopes also that we can have a conversation about it afterwards. So I'm going to start with a brief experiment. Just close your eyes for a moment and listen. Thank you. The chapter I wrote for Arvo Pärt's White Light, an ethnography of spirituality, invites consideration of the anterior in human experience, of what makes this music intimate or meaningful before adhering it to the descriptive label of spiritual, a term which has driven the rhetorical positioning of Pärt's music since its debut, my study differs considerably from previous philosophical and theological approaches to Pert, which have focused on analysis of his work in relation to theological concepts and musical modernity, inquiries into his formation in Eastern Orthodoxy, and Pert's positioning as a wholly minimalist composer by popular media. The chapter I wrote rather orients spirituality phenomenologically. Instead of of defining spirituality as an abstract and privatized concept apart from the events of ordinary life, I focus on the contexts and effects of listeners' experience with Perth's music, on the stories, metaphors, and conditions in which spirituality comes into being for people in their active relationships with this music. In particular, I reference the work of three philosophers, anthropologist Michael Jackson's ethnographic work on storytelling and ritual, Paul Ricoeur's discussion of phenomenological hermeneutics in relation to sacred texts, and sound studies philosopher Salome Verglin's existential phenomenological work on aesthetic theory and sound. Since listening is never separate from social relationships and sites that inhabit the circumstances of hearing, Spirituality can be regarded here as an autobiography of the emergent space we inhabit together, that is, the potentially meaningful resonating space between and including one and one another. For this reason, it is useless to describe spirituality as a marketable essence, which is often the case with ECM. Rather, spirituality emerges variously out of the relationships between ourselves and our environment. We never see it all at once or in exactly the same place twice, yet it becomes a common resource that can be drawn on in different ways to deal with the situation at hand. As William James has famously observed, what transpires in the spaces between people is located neither in external reality nor in the inner subjective psychic world, but emerges out of experiences in this potential space we inhabit together, which define for the moment the apparent reality of the world. From accounts of these experiences, we know that our concepts fail to sufficiently explain reality. Rather, reality exceeds our logic, overflows, and surrounds it. In the following remarks, I'd like to draw on material from my chapter to propose three ideas about Perth's music and spirituality, which I hope we can think more about together after I'm finished and we have a chance to talk about it as a collective. The first idea is about the unhearable, which concerns the phenomenology of listening in aesthetic and political contexts. The second and third ideas are about the role of ritual and trauma in Perth's music, especially in under-recognized sites like refugee centers and AIDS wards. So let me just, these are some quotes by him that I'll just leave up for the moment. Awareness of the interdependence of listening, which emerges throughout this study of personal accounts of Pert's music and its spiritual dimensions in underrepresented social settings, begins to tell us about the previously inaudible aspects of his music. The inaudible could be described as those aspects of the work and the world which, for reasons of expectation, knowledge, and ideology, we have not accessed but which nevertheless influence our perception. Perhaps this may also be connected with what Parrott himself describes as silence. The sonic flesh, or silence, extends in Peart's music through these personal accounts in a continuum between sounds and listeners, by which we hear the flesh of the sonic composition as the continuation of the self. The flesh is the contingent body of perception, the sensible sentient that sees and hears not a positive transcendent object separate from itself, but perceives things through their common simultaneity within the world. Rather than listening for an outline or a form, there is the intertwining of the self and the self stories with the work in a flesh of generative listening that produces the work as a set of emergent possibilities rather than as one actuality. Uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty describes this concept of flesh as having no name in any philosophy nor does it find articulation in musical discourse, and yet it is in the work. It is what allows one to build a private life world or a story in the environment of parrots' music and what allows us to understand the work neither from a musical lexicon nor from a symbolic register, but by inhabiting it simultaneously and relationally. So what I'm talking about here is really The sense of this utterly private inner world that begins to emerge as you're listening to this music, and I think to this music particularly, and I'll talk a little bit more about the way that happens, but there's so much spaciousness and so much creation of an internal generous and generative space for the listener that it enables a very special relationship with sound and with space and with atmosphere. Perth's music disperses in all directions and yet stays together as a dense sonic materiality, immersing one in a musical space that becomes a sonic environment, a space of action and interaction whose agency is my listening and whose locale is the corporality of my body, one element of many whose relationships build the work rather than hearing it. So this, again, is what I was talking about in terms of the work, in a sense, not really existing until it's heard, until the listener takes place and shape within it. Right? The fleshly body of Pert's music and these personal accounts of his music unfolds in the present. It hears things through being heard and touches itself in touching others. This happens by taking into account the context, like a brain trauma ward or a refugee shelter the work develops and in which it exists, which not only allows for the articulation of aesthetic and musical knowledge and consequences, but also opens connections to social, political, and economic realities. So everything that we can't hear, in other words, or the moments of silence, actually don't point us towards some sort of subjective inner world, but point us outwards. The, the silence just goes on and on, right? Like, so when we were just listening just now, what we heard was each other, the subtle movements of sound and rustling. So very much the silence isn't only silence. It's pointing us to this deep intersubjectivity of experience. We need to talk about what we hear to unfasten that hearing from the restrictions of an analytic language and to articulate its own trajectories. And we need to talk about the inaudible as what Vergelin describes as the, quote, possible impossible, which is what is sounded not only in the music itself, but in the social space of its being heard. As we have seen above, the inaudible has consequences that one day, when we know how to inhabit its environment, becomes the possible and the actual. The possible impossibility of Perrot's work in effect is that which moves us into that which we deliberately or inadvertently exclude from our sense of the work, without becoming itself audible, the social, political, and ideological horizon beneath which is hidden those things which do sound but remain unheard. Peart's music makes us aware of these silences, and it encourages us to listen to the inaudible in the work and beyond the work into the future soundscapes of the world. By engaging with the possibility of the impossible, Perth's listener may unfurl the inaudible and tease out its stories, which are the listener's own stories and those of others, not to arrive at an ideal audibility, but to expand the boundary constantly in flux between the audible and the inaudible. To pluralize the actual. Um, And then there are two other short points that I wanted to hear that are more kind of examples of this. Um, Oh, maybe I wrote too much. Okay, I'll I'll go really fast. (laughs) Um, Okay. So the role of ritual in trauma. So implicit in the language of spirituality surrounding Arvo Pert's oeuvre is the conviction on the part of its listeners that there is something in the music's invisible mobility that augments, heightens, and critically re-evaluates the act of listening through sites and contexts that reconstruct meanings in the fleeting circumstance of hearing. His music has been particularly relevant in films that present the complexities of human suffering, such as Wit by Mike Nichols in 2001, a television docudrama where his composition Spiegel im Spiegel counterposes and critiques the medical treatment of a teacher dying of ovarian cancer. Yet the significant discussion of Perth's work in film has not yet addressed how films engaging Perth's music have become meaningfully interpolated into actual life. How a film like Wit, for example, which is often taught um, um, in sort of medical training facilities in order to help doctors or future doctors approach a patient who's dying. Um, so how, um, how this reflects back on palliative care practices and sites and the resulting impact that parrot's Music thus has on actual medical care. Um, So listening here becomes not only a physiological act, but an aesthetic and perceptual attitude that influences how we understand the world, burying deeper and deeper into what we conventionally perceive as the real world to create it in its possibilities rather than recognize its perceived actuality. That last was a quote by um, the filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky. In the presence of the implied corpse, Hovering over the film and over the of care site, we hear not only the structure, meaning, or actuality of Spiegel im Spiegel, but its possibilities and even its impossibilities, that which the work and the world is if we listen to Perth's sonic materiality and find below the surface of the hearable film a continual act of perception. What Perth's music offers in these scenarios is therefore not only the patient's experience of feeling seen and heard through the music in an otherwise alienating setting, but also more subtly the ritual reinvention of a situation that has extreme constraints. The idea of Spiegel im Spiegel, meanwhile, the premise of the mirror in the mirror, which is the translation in German, depends on a delineated frame. The phrase in German refers to an infinity mirror which produces an infinity of images reflected by parallel plane mirrors. The tonic triads in the piece reflect each other back and forth as if endlessly repeated with small variations. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole uh, interpretation of the musical score, but um, let's see. These unseen movements relate the plot of the seemingly dark and forbidding process of dying, which, when heard or even if not heard, nevertheless sound and thicken the viewer's perception. Listening, then, becomes a generative and participatory practice that does not begin from a certain context or a priori knowledge about the work, but suspends as much as possible ideas of genre, context, theory, and purpose. Um. Likewise, the palliative context suggests the infinity mirror of Spiegel im Spiegel also reflects beyond the form of the music itself and casts back its glance on the formal constraints that patients experience in hospice care. The stillness of the body in the hospital bed, the internal silence of having no one with whom to speak, the simplicity of the hospital gown, the life stripped down to its physiological functioning, in a sense, then, one might say that Pert's music actually helps us to die, that it accompanies and mirrors the process of dying by reflecting back to us a bodily experience of testimony, by acting as the witness to our relationship with death, a mimetic mirror in which listeners might prepare themselves with the qualities which to them most represent spirituality. And a last example here, um, from a different context, public narratives of PERT, and for this chapter one of the things I did which hasn't been apparent in what I've been talking about is <laughs> I researched how people hear parrot in the media, and I looked like there are hundreds of, for example, um, Amazon cd comments that random listeners have <laughs> left on his music and it's so phenomenal because they're intensely private and personal and intimate comments about how much the music means to them and oftentimes with personal stories by completely unknown people that really relate how how absolutely extraordinary the presence of arvo Pärt's music is in their lives and often it's about some um particular personal moment the person has experienced or someone who has died and they've played this music as this person has died so it's so meaningful for so many people whose lives are not chronicled in musicology or in any sort of um, theoretical or academic response to Paird's music so part of what I wanted to do was really think about the listener and how this music affects people phenomenologically and how that creates a sort of narrative about spirituality So with a a last point here is that several refugee aid websites, for example, reference Perth's long periods of silence and his status as an Estonian refugee during the Cold War to host benefit concerts that use his music to raise funds for refugee relief um, and things like this. So he's associated with the whole current refugee crisis in a particular way and with musicians who are particularly wanting to help the situation Um, yet in giving legitimacy to the conversion of private stories into a kind of public record um, we are dealing not simply with the human need for recognition but with the deeper need for integration and balance between one's personal world and the wider world of others such that the individual voice carries and one's actions have resonance in a larger geopolit- geopolitical world. A particularly rich example of personal narrative emerging from collaboration with Peretz Music is the 2015 video, which is just a personal, um, non-professional video that was published on Vimeo by Matteo Masali, titled Murano Monagatari," And this short video, Um, combines several of these themes into the wordless story of a young refugee woman mourning those lost, attempting to cross the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Africa to reach Europe. In an interview um, with me over Facebook, um, Masali described himself as a poor um, student filmmaker living in a small town in Italy, and he sent me this paragraph about the origins of this project, which is just a personal, again, like, he's not a famous filmmaker or anything, he's just some guy in Italy um, really disturbed by the refugee crisis and using Pert's music um, to try to work with it. But he said, The film project Mirano Monogatari was born last year by chance. I was sitting on a train, and in front of me there was a Muslim girl who was crying. I had my camera, and I filmed her and the landscape out the window. I used that sequence for the opening, but not the footage of the girl. The day after, I organized a team, chosen actress and the locations, and I went to film without a script. I wanted to tell the story of a woman who had survived this humanitarian tragedy, and I decided to never speak directly of the migrant issue, but to concentrate the movie on the emotions of the protagonist. I live in Italy, and every day we see on television images of refugees that come from North Africa to our coast. I have seen drowned men, pregnant women, and children who died of thirst in the holds of ships. But in Italy, no one cares. They're just dead numbers, with every day another landing. For this reason, I had to create an intimate movie and not a social political movie. During the editing, I chose to use the Arvo Parrot track for Alina because the story needed a kind of music that could underline or focus the emotions of the protagonist. I needed a music that could tell a private drama and turn it into a collective drama. There are no words, and the actions are common. This is the point. We don't know who the girl is. We don't know her story. But immediately, we are part of her suffering. Yet she only rides a bike and looks at the trees. I think, in this case, that the music creates an emotional meaning that transforms every common action, her bicycle ride, for example, into something deeper as we pass from simple spectators to become co-stars in her drama. We identify with the actions of the protagonist, and then the music fills these actions with meaning so that we live her pain because now, somehow, it is ours. This process takes place in an unconscious manner. The film was shot in a very instinctual mood, and it's hard for me to find other explanations." So I just thought that was so brilliant. In fact, he said everything that I have wanted to say in my whole chapter better than I did, but okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And just one last final thing, which is that um, what Parrott's music offers in this context is the possibility of inhabiting the video as a collective musical world, a continuum of sound and meaning between the personal and the public, which offers not an unproblematic linear or reparative history of the migrant crisis, but as Masali notes, a kind of music that could underline or focus the emotions of the protagonist. Um, Perz Forlino works here at a proto-linguistic level, changing one's experience of events both in the video and in the world by ritualistically restructuring them to allow us to feel that we can actively and intimately participate in a world that otherwise seems to discount, demean, and disempower us. As co-stars in her drama, we collaborate with the music and the protagonist in reinventing ourselves and authorizing notions, both individual and collective, in order not only to make our reality bearable, but also to become aware, collectively, of how this reality might be changed. Thank you.
2: Ah, Can I ask (laughs) you a question? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Um, I might not know the answer. No, 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 no. (laughs) I uh, I kept thinking, I mean, uh, we've Talked about these ideas mm. so much, and and it's really uh, wonderful to hear them again because I hear something new every time. Um, and I couldn't help thinking about sort of the logical extension from kind of a musical standpoint as a piece like um, John Cage's Four Minutes Thirty Three Seconds, um, which is basically the premise of this piece is it's kind of an experiment it's in in sound or experience, which is basically just putting a frame around four minutes and thirty three seconds, and it comprises someone walking onto a stage, opening a Piano keyboard, sitting down, waiting for four minutes and 30, thirty-three seconds, closing the piano keyboard and walking off the stage, right? And and of course, it provoked all kinds of outrage at the time and everybody. Um, but I kept thinking of from what you were saying about that idea of of really framing, like providing a frame, and then experience flooding in in a way, you know. Um, and and how that like you can only write a piece like four minutes and 33 seconds once, right? And, and, it's, and Perth has done such a different kind of thing, and I know that you're not making those kinds of comparisons, but mm-hmm. what is it particularly about Parrot's music that creates, that, I mean, another example would be a lot of the work by Anton Webern, which is these sort of pointillistic things of sound, right, A very atonal, Kinds of moments in which it is again a kind of framing of experience, but no one does this with Anton Webern's music, right? Mm-hmm. They do it with our Peretz, and so I'm wondering, do you, you know, what is the thing past? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not taking issue really with anything you've said. <laughs> I think it's really spot on. But what is it particularly about that music, other than it's just mm-hmm. so achingly beautiful? Mm-hmm.
3: I I was trying to describe this, but there's a sense of... There's so much space and such an expansive use of time, too. So Mm -hmm. unlike the pointillism that you mentioned of Webern, there's a sense in which there's time for this internal world to be created as you're hearing the music. So it's really being created in you at the same time. And that spaciousness and silence, I think, the implication of expanding our listening to each other but also to you know a subjective kind of space so it's really I think it's helping us cultivate um, more expansive inner lives that are not self enclosed but very permeable to the outside world and to the suffering of other people and to a kind of thinness of difference between outside and inside. And I think that's very much what the music, I, I don't know if he would articulate it that way, but I feel like he would resonate at least maybe with that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm curious to hear yes. more about the sketches. and these oh, things that happen before the
2: yes. and So. Yes, they're, they're, I'm just waiting for the archive to open, you can tell. Um, so, as I understand it, uh, he begins with a visual drawing, a very basic visual drawing. And some of them, I, I know, by the way, this is not particular to Parrot. Many composers do this, um, and I've seen that, where they will, you know, create basically like a mind map, a massive, which is both visual and also has kind of, Musical and also um, verbal cues about the large scale structure of something. Um, his are particularly um, lyrical in a way. Um, and they're also, I'm also just completely struck by how well they encapsulate the main idea of a piece. Mm-hmm. There's a piece that, there's a book rather, that was released a couple of years ago by the center, one of the first books published by the Arvo Pert Center that is a a collection of his libretti um, with translations and it's so it's just the the text and these drawings and that's the entire book Um, and i highly recommend you looking that one up Um, it's you can get a better sense of how they work but each one is just just jewel-like you know each of these drawings and they're quite unique as well Um, i think he has a very very strong visual sense Um, but for him they are absolutely the, the starting point it's not you know, it's not anything. Although I think that there's a book in there, clearly. I mean, just from an aesthetic point of view, to talk about them visually as objects, which is amazing.
0: I think in the interest of time, we yes. should probably wrap up. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the, uh, the Divinity School, we're going to go across the street to Andover Chapel, which is on the second floor. So if you literally just go through the main double doors, Andover Hall and go straight up the staircase. You can't miss it. It starts at 7.15. Again, that clock is a bit fast. So time to visit the restroom if you need to, or make any other stop. But before we all gather, I mean, before we all run away, let's thank our panelists.